Welcome, everyone. My um, thanks to you, folks, for choosing to spend some of your morning this way. I hope it feels like an offering to yourself. Um, so today, um, this talk evidently is titled, uh, uh, Watch Yourself Come Alive. So we'll figure out if that makes sense, I guess, in the next half hour or so. <clears throat> um, but we'll start with a quote, um, pretty well known. One of the more oft-quoted passages from Shunryu Suzuki Yoshi, a lot of you know that name. Um, for those of you who are in the room here and have a program in front of you, the passages is there for you. For those of you who are um, watching from a distance, I'll read it for you. Uh, Shinryu Suzuki Roshi, of course, is one of the um, early Soto Zen pioneers to bring this um, practice to our to our country. So he is um, very well known and um, you know, very fondly regarded. He was, he was my teacher's first teacher, so. Even though you try to put people under control, it is impossible. You cannot do it. The best way to control people is to encourage them to be mischievous. Then they will be in control in a wider sense. To give your sheep or cow a large, spacious meadow is the way to control them. So it is with people. First, let them do what they want and watch them. This is the best policy. To ignore them is not good. That is the worst policy. The second worst is trying to control them. The best is to watch them, just to watch them, without trying to control them. Pretty cool, right? A lot of us have heard that. I know we've heard that story. I appreciate the gentleness of the language. Um, if you haven't heard his voice, do look it up. It's on YouTube. There's a handful of recordings and videos of him teaching. And I think that actually helps us connect to the heart that was offering these. It's cool on the page. Those words are beautiful, you know, but to hear it in, in his voice, to hear the softness of the voice, to me says more about his practice than his choice of words. I just think it's cool. So, um, as always, uh, he's using metaphor to um, to do his teaching. That's a pretty common practice in, in Zen to use metaphor instead of addressing things. We kind of come at them sideways by using simile and metaphor. He's talking about self-control, of course. He's talking about the way we bear witness to our own self-nature. He's talking about the way that we bear witness to the movements of mind. When we're sitting in meditation. And he said the worst thing to do is to ignore it. No, don't ignore it. And that's actually an important teaching for us in this country now, because the pervasive cultural understanding about meditation, I think, still is that you leave. You leave this, which is hard, and you go someplace easy. I'm assuming I'm not alone <laughs> in sharing that understanding. Oh, that's the best half an hour of my day. 
I set my timer. Oh. And then the timer goes off. Oh no, my life. It's <laughs> like, okay, that's lovely. That's fine. There's way worse bad habits than that. All right, half an hour. But you can feel the fundamental relationship there is I'm going away. I'm ignoring it. I'm ignoring the body. I'm ignoring the breath. I'm ignoring the feelings. I'm ignoring the thoughts. Nope, 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 nope. He said, that's the worst. Please don't ignore your experience. Isn't that nice? And then the second worst, try to control it. We hear that one a lot too. Right? If you've read some books on meditation, you've probably heard some flavor of this. Sit down and focus the mind. Stop the thoughts from showing up. Control the experience. Can you feel it? That's nice because it gives the ego a nice metric by which to judge. So that, so that at the end of the magic half an hour, you can tell how well you did because you feel 72.3% more relaxed. <laughs> because you were able to suppress 72.3% of your afflictive thoughts. Can you feel it? Like, ooh, I'm getting stronger. And if I even had more control, ooh, if my meditation muscles were even bigger, I could get up to like 78, 79. <gasps> Someday I want to be like my teacher because I bet he can just force down. Can you feel it? <laughs> I'm being a little glib just to emphasize the point. So Suzuki, in his normal, gentle, kind way, takes away both of those things from us. No, 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 no. Don't ignore it. And don't try to control it. Just watch it. Just watch it. Just watch it. I don't know. I'm adding when I read this, because I've read a lot of him, right? <clears throat> he doesn't have that many books, but I've, when I say I've read a lot, I mean I've read them a lot. <laughs> I've read that book, Suzanne Mind Beginner's Mind, so many times it's fallen apart, right? Which means I have a sense of what his voice is. And so when I read that, what I hear, and perhaps it's projection, but I hear affection for the sheep or the cow. He's like, yeah, it's important to be tame. It's important that we are friends with one another. It's important we understand our role with one another in our relationship. But I'm going to watch you. I want to connect to you. I want to understand where do you go in the pasture? Like, what are you drawn to? Oh, you always go to that one corner where the lilacs are. I wonder what that's about. Why? I'm curious about that. Right? So my assumption is that the thing that he is watching, he has affection and care for, that he actually wants a healthy, happy sheep, a healthy, happy cow. Right? That the goal isn't to break it, the way we think of taming here in the West. The true meaning of the word tame, its origin, if you look it up etymologically, is to befriend. To befriend. Oh, are you a tame monster? Yes. Oh, good. We can hang out. Even though you got big, we can still hang out, right? Because we're safe with one another. We understand one another. Okay. Okay. And that's a sense that we hopefully begin to uncover in ourselves as we do sitting practice. I'm saying uncover because I trust that it already exists in you. I trust that at the very, very bottom, you already have a fundamental affection for the experience of being alive, a fundamental appreciation for the experience of being alive, uh, a fundamental wonder or awe perhaps um, in the face of the experience of being alive. I trust that it's there uh, underneath 
the suffering, underneath the judgment, underneath the desires, all those things are very, very real. But I trust that your true nature is the same as my true nature, which is the same as all true nature, which is, <sighs> I'm in the pasture again. I can hardly wait to get to those lilacs. They're nummy. They're nummy. So I think, I like to think that as we sit, especially over the course of months or years or decades, that the heart becomes larger and the heart becomes softer and that which we observe becomes more, we become more affectionate toward it. And that our impulse toward ignoring it begins to decrease. We don't want to ignore it as much anymore. And that our tendency to want to control it decreases too. We start to appreciate, oh, you're really busy today. You can't stop galloping all around the pasture. Lots to do today. Look at that sheep go. Because yesterday I couldn't even get you out of the barn. You just sat there. Isn't that interesting? Look at you. Big furry thing. So, I like to think it evolves our practice. I like to think that our relationship softens. I like to think we become larger and more loving. Um, I'm using the word evolution on purpose because when most of us uh, sit for the first time, we're first introduced to the idea of self-witnessing, whether we are introduced to that in a sacred setting or a secular setting, and, or whether that practice is called like mindfulness or centering prayer or contemplative practice or zazen. Um, it does seem like many of us go through very similar initial steps that have a similar evolution later, right, as we're learning to self-witness. It seems pretty common for most of us that the very first time we sit down and we're taught to bear witness to the movements of mind, the movements of thought, that we didn't know until that moment that we didn't choose them and that we couldn't stop them. Right? Usually the very first time you sit down, you're like, oh my God, I had no idea how much was going on up there. It really doesn't stop. Stop. And she's like, boop, 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 boop. no, stop now. Boop, 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 boop. Okay, now I really, really mean it. Boop, boop, boop. Oh, I can't stop you. Oh, no, no, that's interesting. Which makes you start wondering some kind of cool questions like, is that me thinking those? Is that me? We have a tendency to think that our thoughts are us. We have a tendency to think that our thoughts are true. I would encourage you to investigate both of those assumptions. <laughs> it's me and that they're true. Just play with that one for a while. Anyway, one way of seeing the evolution of our meditation practice <clears throat> is that it is in fact evolution, that we do become a larger container of awareness, a larger container of consciousness for that which we behold. And uh, one of the things that helps us at the beginning, and I don't know what beginning means. Beginning could mean the first few months, it could mean the first few years, it could mean the first few decades. Um, I don't really know what beginning means anymore. But I do think at the beginning, it's helpful to have a still setting in which to practice. That's why we have this building, right? We know we don't need this building to practice Zen. Our Zen practice is not dependent on this building being here, right? You can sit at home, you can sit by the lake, you can sit at work, you can sit, I mean, you're sitting, you've been sitting your whole life, you don't need this building. But ooh, isn't it nice to have a space and a community that is devoted to the one activity? It's a calm space, it's a beautiful space, it's a clean space, it's kept with great care. Can you kind of feel? 
Like, oh, when I go to the Zen Center, it feels different when I do Zazen than when I do it at home. A lot of us notice that. Not even a better or worse, but just a difference. It feels like at the beginning, sitting in a very calm and still setting facilitates that inward gaze. Right? We're reminded of the stillness that we take, that we have, and that we take with us when we leave. For me, for many years, the metric of the success of morning zazen, I hope you can hear my words. You can see already this is going to fail. Right? The success of my morning zazen, right? I would take the number six and then the number 12, six down to this um, 34th and happen, and then come here, you know, 545, you're on your cushion, and you do a sitting, and then you 10 minutes of kinhin, and then another sitting, and then you do the service, and then you leave. Okay, that's when you start the timer. I feel so chill. I feel so still. My heart feels so big. I feel so grounded. There's my breath. Oh my God, it's cool on the, ins on the inhale. Oh, it's warm on the exhale. Oh, I feel so, this is great. And then I get on the number six. And then, right? Will I make it home? Will the calmness last? All the way home, maybe? It's going to be like 20 minutes. I don't know. It kind of depends on who's going to sit next to me. Are they going to want to talk? Right? What do they smell like? How many red lights do we have? And so the metric for success was how long did it last? Like, ooh, on Tuesday it lasted for an hour. I had it for a whole hour. Oh my God. But on Thursday, right out the window, I don't know why, I didn't even make it to the number six bus stop. I was so cranky. You feel how we just evaluate? <laughs> evaluate, evaluate, evaluate. But nevertheless, I was very devoted, as I know many of us in this room are, and the virtual room as well, to coming to a special space, to take a special spot, to adopt with our bones and our muscles a special posture, to light a special candle and offer incense, and to rest in a space that is undisturbed. It feels respectful to ourselves to give ourselves that gift. It feels respectful to the community and respectful to the ancestors who have gone before us to do a literal following of the footsteps to do the same ritual there's a gift we're giving ourselves there right only by stilling the body and the environment around the body can we start to see how much movement there really is within us and how it doesn't stop I think that's why sitting meditation for the first time is so interesting to me. Because even though I was noticing the activity of my brain for the first time, I was smart enough to know, you know, it's always been doing that. <laughs> it's not like it just started now. It's always been doing that, but you finally sat down and you sat still with your body. And for those 20 minutes, you didn't allow yourself to do anything else. You didn't even lift your eyes and scan the room. You kept your eyes down and focused, and all you did was stay still. And then I could experience much more clearly because I was still in a room of stillness, in a room of quiet, I could see so much more clearly the activity. Kind of makes sense, right? Just because of the, the contrast, right? I saw the restlessness of my body. I saw the restlessness of my emotion. I saw the chatter and the storms of my thought what our teachers sometimes call the waves of mind. Of course, uh, even though I was told not to, I regarded all of them as a problem. 
I did not know that waves are part of water nature. It's the nature of water to make waves sometimes. It's also the nature of water to be still sometimes, and the nature of water to evaporate into vapor sometimes. It's the nature of water to freeze. Sometimes none of those are more water than others. No one's winning. But I had an idea that a still mind was somehow better than a wavy mind, that it was winning. I understand that. Suzuki Roshi said, waves are the practice of the water. Ooh. That one sentence is totally better than the rest of this whole talk, you guys. <laughs> that one sentence, right? Wow. Waves are the practice of the water. Thinking is the practice of the brain. Of course it is. Breathing is the practice of the lungs. Pumping is the practice of the heart. Wow. It makes me sad when I realize I created an enemy so early. So early I created an enemy. I was never told to do this. I was never told to do this. I can't say like I was misinformed. I had a teacher who said, still the waves of mind, they are your enemy. No, nobody was stupid enough, thank God, in my life to tell me that. My teacher said, what teachers have always said? Oh, sit down, there's a large pasture, just sit down, it's okay, just watch, just watch. And I was like, okay, yeah, but what you really mean is, I'll just watch and I do it right, then the thing's gonna happen, right? That's the thing, yeah, all right, we're doing it. It's gonna be mystical, it's then. Instead of, no, it's just gonna be a human being who meets you there, just a human being with restless body and wavy thoughts and sometimes still thoughts and sometimes really peaceful thoughts and sometimes a lot of hope and sometimes a lot of despair and sometimes a lot of confusion and sometimes all at once and sometimes none. Wow, why don't you just watch? Can you feel the size of the pasture? It's including restless, not restless, still wavy, happy, sad. It's just including all that. It's the nature of the pasture. There's going to be weeds and flowers and all sorts of stuff. It's okay. It's okay. Waves are the practice of the water. Mm. So those first few times that we start to regard our own experience with some kindness, or at the very least, when we first start to regard our experience without the judgment, without the habitual evaluation. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean when I say judgment, right? Like the evaluative critical process of want more of, want less of, good, bad, grab, push, right? Is that making sense? Yeah. Mindfulness, we call it. That's a good, that's a fine word, I guess. Um, the very first time we just regard the experience and go, oh, that's the thing that's happening. That's it. And there's not the arising of the agenda for it. Oh, I wish it was. Like, oh, this is just the thing. That's it. That is you seeing yourself outside of your patterning. That's you seeing yourself outside of the patterning. You've just broken the cycle in that moment. You go, oh, it's just there. I see it. There it is. That's it. Bam. You've just stepped outside of the patterning. The patterning is not our enemy. This isn't a bad thing. Again, we're not setting up enemies here. But the patterning always is, ooh, I like it, I don't like it, I want more of it, I want less of it, it is good, it is bad. Can you feel it? Read and hate, we call it, but we're picking and choosing, whatever, Zen's got a lot of words for this. But the normal functioning of the frontal is to grab and say, ooh, this will help sustain me or meet a need or I like it or it's enjoyable. 
or the opposite, don't like, right? So you can feel in my little story, when I leave the Zen Center, you know, 20 years ago, oh, that's a good thing because, oh, Busho, he's quiet. His thoughts are have quieted. And I have decided that is a good thing that is desirable to have. Furthermore, my ego has also said, this is years, it took me years to see this layer of, that means something about you, you're awesome. <laughs> you're awesome. See all these people on this bus? Look at how busy they are. Oh my God, you're totally winning. You're totally winning. You're like super deep. They don't even know it. Oh my God, they don't even know it. They're sitting next to you. They should be so lucky. <laughs> right? That's way at the bottom, you guys, right? So no wonder by the time I got home and I was already cranky because the guy next to me had his radio on or because they missed a stop or because blah, 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 blah. And then, started to fade away and my brain was right back up to telling stories and my heart was back to its normal churning. Why that was so afflictive? Because yeah, my brain is busy now and it was still, so what? Well, that layer that, uh, that I added, that layer of meaning, that that meant something about me. Oh, can you feel it? I just lost my value. I'm busy like everyone else. Can you feel it? You can hear as I'm saying this, this is a crap narrative. There is no truth here. But you can also hear as I'm saying it, I hope, why it felt the way it did. Because I believed that. If I have a still mind, that's a better thing than a busy mind. That makes me a better person with a still mind than a person with a busy mind. Do you see it? Still busho is of more value than busy busho. Can you feel it? And if that's true about me, oh, that's why Zen's winning. Isn't it delicious to just know that you're part of the in-group, that you're like totally dialed into some magical, mystical vein of truth that just frankly makes you better, baby. And it's going to feel so good. I mean, try not to compare yourself to your neighbors, but you get to secretly know you're totally rocking it because you sit and stare at the wall for an hour. And that means something about you. And you go, oh my God, right? Again, I'm dialing it up here just so you can see the dynamic, but I'm being dead sober serious when I say this is a human thing. <laughs> and what I hope you can hear in this is control. There's Suzuki's control. If I could just get it to do this and to realize how many places in me that desire for control is coming from. Wow. And I know you all know that human beings, homo sapiens, are very quick to make meaning of things. That is not a bad thing. That is just what we do, right? My cat does not do that. I do that. I make meaning out of things. That's wonderful. That's an evolutionary function. That's part of what makes us so unique as a species. But you can also feel, ooh, that blade cuts both ways, right? Because we have this insecure ego, this separate sense of self that Buddhism is always talking about. Oh, you think you're separate. Therefore, you've got something to be scared of. Therefore, you have something to protect. Therefore, you have something that you want its value to go up instead of down. Oh, there's the origin of all of it. Yes, that's correct. That's a correct teaching. But because it is also true, because it's also true, then so much of what we are motivated by very deeply unconsciously goes down to it. Does this mean something about me? And will it make me better? Does this mean something about me? Will it make me worse? That's a big deal for us. 
It's a big deal for us. Our teachers have been telling us this for, in our tradition, 2,500 years. We use different words for it in Buddhism, the relationship of self and how we, how we uh, see through the workings of the self and how we understand, right? We have the skanda model in Buddhism and the way we break that thing down and the different needs of all those different parts and how that functions, the world, blah, 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 blah. But what I'm aware of is how quickly we can weaponize something like Zaza. And when I say weaponize, I mean, if I leave this building thinking that I am better because I just did that thing, I've turned it into a weapon. That's not a very kind thing for me to do. And you can feel there's only one part of me that would ever need to do that. And it sure isn't my awakened nature. It's not my kind nature. It's not my compassionate nature. Those are already fine. Right? That's you. That's your compassionate self, your awake self, your wise self, your Buddha nature. Never needs to prove anything to anyone. It laughs at the idea of value because give me a break. Give me a break. It's ridiculous. It's an absurd thing. But so when we notice that, when we notice that small functioning, that desire to control, that desire to ignore, we can recognize the part of us that's awake. We go, oh, sweetheart, you're suffering. Because only suffering would give rise to that. Right? Only insecurity gives rise to the need to be better. Duh. Right? That makes sense. A five-year-old would understand that. It's a wonderful way to use zazen, isn't it? To use the time that we spend sitting in the cushion to find those little pockets of insecurity and pain and suffering and go, oh, I trust you're there for a reason. Come on into the light. Come on into the light. I'm, I'm, I'm meaning me. I'm seeing you. I see you. I see you. It's okay that you're there. Come on on. Let me see you. What's going on? What's going on? Why don't you tell me your story? Tell me your story. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, that sounds so hard. Sweetheart, I understand. I know that feeling. Well, what do you think is true? Does that seem true to you? What parts of your story seem true? I bet you there's some truth in there. But I bet because you're suffering, it seems like there's probably some ideas on there that aren't true. Why don't you tell me? So I'm using language that we would use with a child. You can hear it in my voice, right? But what I've just described is the movement of compassion, which is, I see that you're suffering, come toward me, it's okay. Let's talk. It's okay. Are you feeling lonely? Are you feeling angry? Are you feeling confused? Are you feeling, well, it's okay. That's compassion with suffering. Co is with, passion, suffering. With suffering, I'm with it. I'm not ignoring, I'm following Suzuki Roshi. He told me don't ignore, I'm not ignoring. Oh, I see that you're there. And then the second part is, I'm listening to your story. I wonder what, what do you think? Let's look at your story together and let's decide together what we think is right. What's true and what is not true. What I'm describing to you is wisdom. We call it wisdom in this tradition because we need a big word, wisdom. It sounds cool, right? But it really is just true. Is it true? Is it not true? So, right, under the tree, Buddha has his big awakening. The very first sermon that he gives, Satipatthana Sutta, or one of the very first sermons, I forget the actual chronological order according to the myth. It's obviously a myth. The Satipatthana Sutta, the instruction on mindfulness. First thing we do, pay attention to the body. We incorporate the breath. Second thing we do, or third, depending on how we order these things, is the emotions. What are you feeling? 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 Can you feel it? I'm saying it a lot, because we don't like that one. We ignore that one for a bunch of reasons. We ignore that one. That's where the pain is. I know. That's why we're doing it. I just got through telling you. <laughs> what are you feeling? What are you feeling? What are you feeling? Be with it. 
know it. Be mindful of it. No judgment of it. Don't ignore it, but don't try to control it. Do you feel Suzuki is just going all the way back? And then what's the step after that? Thought consciousness. Thinking. Do you see how those last two are related? Do you notice how when you're sad, you think sad thoughts? Of course you do. Do you notice how thinking sad thoughts helps create sadness? Yeah. Of course you do. Everybody knows that. So this very fundamental movement of, I'm going to sit down and be with this. I'm going to create in my, in my awareness a very large pasture that includes all of these elements. And my vow when I see a sheep or a cow that's having a hard time, that's really suffering, is I will vow to know that that sheep and cow is having a hard time and suffering and say, I will be with you. I'm practicing compassion. I'm not ignoring. And I'm not trying to control. And further, when it's ready, because sometimes it takes a while for them, a really big emotion to be ready, then I can start to listen to its narrative. We can start to listen to the narrative because we know we will find something true. And we know we're going to find some falsehood, ignorance, we would call it in our tradition, right? Because we know when we're trying to express a feeling, words are inadequate, they're kind of clumsy, and they can do their best. But we know as we're explaining a feeling, we're going to use metaphor and simile and kind of clumsy words to try to describe them. And so then we can look at them and go, oh, yeah, some of that feels right to me. And some, some of that not so right. We all know that, right? As we're trying to describe a a really big feeling, especially the words are kind of, nah, right? Does that make sense to folks? Anybody ever fall in love when they were 16 and try to write a poem? <laughs> For those of you on Zoom, everybody in the room, <laughs> everybody just said, <laughs> we all fall in love when we were 16 and we all tried to write a poem and then we all read it a couple of years later and went, oh my God, I could be arrested for this poem. I can't believe how bad this is. This is shocking, right? So that was your first taste, that little sweet 16-year-old with a bursting heart of trying to get words to describe the thing and you realize, oh, it kind of can't, right? But it's also kind of fun to try. Hot dog, it's a fun thing to do, right? That's why we have Taylor Swift. <laughs> right? It works. It doesn't, but it does, right? Just like Dogen. That's why we have Suzuki talking about cows and sheep. <laughs> doesn't really work, does it? Well, yeah, but it also kind of does. So as we listen to those, as we listen, though, to the words we can apprehend, there's a true thing. And there's a false thing. And what I will say, in defense of still mind, because it's one of the things that mind does sometimes. <laughs> stillness is the practice of the water. I'm misquoting him on purpose because stillness is the practice of the water, just like waves are the practice of the water. But when we're feeling still and when we're feeling more connected to ourselves, it is fair to say that most of us are more clearly able to apprehend what is true. What is true in our narrative? Do you feel this is an evolution in our practice? Do you feel how at the beginning it's just shut up up there, shut up up there, hey up there, shut up, shut up up there, right? Because I have an idea that I'm gonna feel better if you shut up, right? But then later in practice, when we get a little more, I'll say grounded, we'll get a little more more tour, we pay attention to the chatter in a different way. Because number one, we know when we listen to it with kindness and we don't try to control it, it shuts up all by itself, it actually does. But further, we start to realize it's giving us some really valuable clues. It's giving us some really valuable clues, incredibly important clues 
I'm aware of suffering is. And that's why the Buddha said, pay attention to those things. Be mindful of thought consciousness. It feels incredibly significant to me that the instruction under the tree 2,500 years ago in the myth wasn't shut that thing up. Try to get it to stop. Ignore it. Control it. You can all feel the violence in that. You don't need me to point it out. You can feel that ignoring is violent. It's not including. It's violent. And that trying to control is violent. What part of you, what part of me, would give rise to the urge to want to control? Right? Only the small part that's really, really scared. That has an agenda. That needs it to be different. Yeah. It's beautiful to be able to see. Calmness of mind does not mean you should stop your activity. Real calmness should be found in activity itself. We say it is easy to have calmness in inactivity. It is hard to have calmness in activity. But calmness in activity is true calmness. And Suzuki again. He uses the word calmness so many times in those two sentences that it does that thing. You know that thing where you hear the word too many times and it stops meaning anything? What do they call that? You know what I mean. Yeah, I'm like, okay, wait, I got to start over. All he's talking about is when you first come to the Zen Center and it's a peaceful, calm environment, it facilitates you becoming calm. That's why we do it. It's beautiful. Right? And then sooner or later we realize, wait, my calmness isn't contingent on being here. True calmness, he says, is the calmness that I find on the bus. And when I get home, and at this point in practice with all of you here today on this Sunday, I'm suggesting the large pasture is a perfect metaphor because true calmness is noticing the busyness. I'm noticing, oh yeah, there's a very still part of me that's just watching the activity. There it goes. Lots of stories to tell today. Lots of movement and emotion. The fact that I can see those means I'm not them. And Suzuki in this passage isn't like confused that he's the sheep. You get that, right? He doesn't think, oh my God, that cow is me. <laughs> that sheep is me. Right? When you're watching your thoughts and your emotions rise and churn, only the desire to like control would be like, oh, it must be me, and it must mean something about me, therefore I must control it, right? No, 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 you're just watching it. You're just watching it. You're just watching it. It's not separate from you, but that's not you. Or else you wouldn't be able to see it. You see? Oh, yeah, there it is. Oh, there it is. There it is. There, now nonviolence. Nonviolence. There's no desire to control there. Because there's no agenda there. And that's calmness. Isn't that beautiful? So all by itself, the miracle happened of watching from outside of the self and seeing its connection to all things. That's actually watching from deep within who we really are. We're watching the outside of ourselves from the center of ourselves. And we're looking out at the movement. Try that when you're doing zazen next. When you're noticing the chatter, remind yourself you're inside, looking out. You're the calm center. And the swirl is going on around you. And you're not outside of yourself looking in. You're inside. 
Look at now. It's swirling around you. Yeah, there it is. Right? If you all had that experience of being inside when the wind is like really whistling outside, you can, you're like, I'm inside. And that's happening too. It's okay. I mean, they're both happening. They're both real. They're both happening. But that still point is within you, right? And so when you're noticing the activity, you're noticing it from within, not from without. Don't leave. That's why he says, Buddha, um, mindfulness of the body in the body as the body. Mindfulness of emotion in the emotions as the emotions. Mindfulness of thought in the thought as the thought. It's like, don't go anywhere. Quit trying to leave. My version of the Satipatthana Sutra, my translation might be a little more contemporary because in my version, he like says stuff like that. Like, stop it, quit it. Busho, I see you. Quit trying to squirm. What is wrong with you? And some other versions that I probably shouldn't say on a Sunday <laughs> talk. He gets a little salty in my translation because he's trying to speak my language. All right. Well, I've got to wrap up here. Um, so I will end with this. Um, I will end with this. The fundamental kindness that I hear and that I hope you hear in Suzuki's voice in the pasture metaphor I hope you recognize that kindness as yourself. And as much as his instruction is very gently encouraging us to notice our desire to ignore. And he's encouraging us to notice our desire to control, right? He's doing it in such a way that we are reminded of how kind we actually are. I really, really do believe that. I don't, in fact, know. I know that. Belief is too small. I know that about everyone here, whether I've met you or not. I know that because it is true nature. I'm not saying mine, and I'm not saying yours anymore. It is the true nature of consciousness. It just is. Before the grabbing, before the judging, there's just... Connection, apprehension, not the emotion, apprehensive. There's just apprehending. It's just, we've all seen this. We all know this. We've all had this experience. We know this. If you have forgotten this about yourself, that's okay. But please find a baby quickly. Find a baby. <laughs> go to your friend's house who had a baby or go to the, find a baby and hold a baby for five minutes because you'll remember you will see in their eyes and you will feel in your body. This is the original version that is not yet grabbing, holding, pushing, judging, evaluating. This being does not imagine itself to be in any way inadequate. That idea doesn't exist. I'm not saying that we should become like the baby and go back. That's devolution. I am saying that part of us doesn't go away. And there is a way, in Zen we call it Zazen, and practice, of remembering, oh right, before the autopilot kicks in, there's something else. And it's the something else that I want to be in relationship with the autopilot. I do not want the autopilot to go away. 
I do not want my ego functioning to go away. I do not want my capability to think really fast and really efficiently to go away. That's a really helpful function. But it's a function. It's not who I am. I learned it. I learned it. It's just a tool. So wouldn't it be cool at this point in your life if you learned, you can also put it down. You can just put it down. And remember the big pasture that has always been there. You have it, you are it, you always will be it. You can't not be it. Try it. I mean, try if you want. It's like leaving the present moment. Do it. <laughs> I dare you. I guess. Only in the present moment. Okay, well, show me how you're not in the present moment. One, two, three, go. Well, you failed again. Seems like the problem you thought you had, you don't really have. I don't know. Good luck. So what I'm reminding us all of today, and I'm reminding us of this today because I need to be reminded of this. Kind is first. We say compassion and we say wisdom in our tradition, and those are beautiful words. Yep. I believe the teaching is true. That is our fundamental nature. But I believe kind is first. So please, as you are sitting, as you are not sitting, as you are in this room together today, as you're leaving together today, <laughs> I'm offering myself this invitation. Don't forget the pasture. Notice the part of you that wants to control. Notice the part of you that wants to ignore. Just notice them. Do you feel the freedom when I let that go? Okay. So I appreciate um, you being here today. I appreciate you um, giving yourself this time and you're giving me this time, so I'm grateful to you. Um, hi, everyone out there. There's just this whole screen of people. There's a whole bunch of them and they're waving now. Look at them, they're waving. <laughs> they're waving. Kato has really big headphones on. Oh, that's so cool, the big headphones. Good to see you now. He's Anyway, so thank you. Um, we have a f just a few minutes if anybody has uh, comments, questions, something you want to offer, insights, I don't know. Um, otherwise, we'll turn it over to the Dawn and we'll make announcements. On, on with our day, we'll go. Please. So this is kind of a question to articulate because this just came up because of your talk, but I'll try. Sure. So, um, there are some forms of meditation when you do go someplace, you know, yes. imagine yourself next to a pot and the room, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I find that when I sit for the first five or six minutes, I watch the blah, blah, blah. Then I kind of settle into this quiet, still place. Mm -hmm. but, when, but I'm wondering if that's going someplace too. And I just haven't symbolized it or made it into an iconography or metaphor because as soon as the bell chimes, I go, oh, not yet, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so then I think, okay, I kind of did go somewhere. Um, so how do you make that distinction between you really settling into just this and I'm not happy place. Yeah. What a great question. Do you guys understand the question there? Mm -hmm. Hot dog. Good to see you again. By the way, Rebecca. Good to be here. Boy, I don't know. I don't know. My sense, though, is you've given yourself some really good clues. Just by what happened to your voice when you said, when the bell rings. Mm -hmm. And I go, <gasps> not yet, not yet. That's fine. I, I very rarely have that experience. <laughs> I, I love what you're doing there. I aspire. 
I will someday be like Rebecca. I will never ring. Usually it's, are you going to ever ring that bell? I will get up and ring it myself. So, again, I'm being glib. I've had both, but... But that shows, no, the beauty of what you're saying there is you can feel a moment of grasping at the end. Yeah. Yeah. I would suggest, just because you've been doing this a while, like, yeah, you're just this is that too. Like, all right, there's the this, and there's the peacefulness, and there's the bell, there's the grasping. Yep, I see it. I mean, I would be, I would be very hesitant to sort of pathologize that. But because it's showing up as a question for you, oh, I'm uncertain. I immediately kind of go, ooh, I would then want to be a little maybe more subtle in my awareness during, just during the period of Zazen. You're there to do that anyway, to kind of go, oh, I wonder if I can notice the change from what we do at the beginning to what happens. It's like, oh, I notice. I wonder if that, I wonder what that is. And then maybe you could introduce that kind of, that kind of ego meaning piece that we were playing with today of like, I wonder, if there is sort of in the grasping at the end, ah, if there is a sense of, but I just did something that was really good and now, and just kind of wonder if there's a meaning making layer there. I don't know the answer, but I love that you're asking it and there must be a reason. Did that make sense? It's okay if it didn't. I just thought her question was great. Yeah. Anybody else have anything or? Oh, Leo. We're uh all sheep in this big pasture and before the remodeling the pasture was over there it was much smaller pasture <laughs> and now there's a lot more sheep so we need a bigger pasture the difference you were talking about the difference between meditating here at home by yourself here there's a restriction of this pasture it's limited at home my pasture is unlimited it's infinite so i'll be sitting there i'm thinking wow oh, this the sheep could use a cup of coffee. <laughs> 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 I mean, here I can't get up and go in there. Like, oh, we're going with this coffee, some toast with some nice jelly on <laughs> All of a sudden, my pastor, I'm all over the pastor. I'm not concentrating on anything. And then coming in here, for me, there's a big difference. In a, in a group of people like this, I can't explain it. Words just can't explain it. There's a vibe in here. Being together with everyone, there's a feeling. I think I have it. I know everyone has it. There's this feeling that being together and trying to do the same thing of not thinking brings us together. And there's a, there's a lot of power in a group, but I can't explain exactly what, what it is. But. No. I can't either, but isn't that, is that, am I alone in that? Do other people notice a difference between sitting alone and sitting here, yeah, nodding in hand? A lot of nodding in hands. I know you guys at home are feeling that. Yeah, Jeremy's Jim, nodding. Um, yeah, I. You know what? I've gone through phases of preferring one over the other. You know, and I think it usually has to do with my evaluation process. That whole thing of like the success of my zazen. Like I got much more successful zazen. Much more successful. Like I'm pretty pretty significantly awesome when I'm there. And when I'm at home, uh, it's kind of, but then I went through a phase of the opposite. Like, no, I can never concentrate there. That guy there is breathing so loud. Oh, they ring the bells too loud. No, they can never do the on right. Oh, they drive me crazy. But if I do it at home, then I can do it right. Oh, thank God. Right, you know? And then I'm at the point now, it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> oh, sweetie, that was about you the whole time. Oh, that was just about you. That said, 100%. Everybody says that they notice, whether they prefer it or not, that they notice a difference sitting in the presence of other people. 
I think that seems like a thing. Um, yeah, Sangha, the power of Sangha. I love that this is a bigger, what, what, for those of you who don't know, we just did a huge remodel here at MZMC and the Zendo that we're sitting in now is significantly larger than the Zendo that's down the hall here, right? So this new pasture <laughs> is significantly larger than the, than the old pasture was, yeah. And also sheep like coffee. That's one of our takeaways. <laughs> if I understand, that's one of our, all right. All right, please. I just wanted to commend you on the boldness of using Suzuki, Dogen, and Taylor Swift. Same. <laughs> <laughs> talking about Kia and liking and disliking. I mean, it's, it's right there. Non-separation, my friend. It's non-separation. <laughs> I'm sure she's a lovely person. The, <laughs> the unity of the Dharma voice is what that is. And the infinite manifestations of the Dharma voice. All right, my friends, uh, thank you so much for your attention, and I will turn this over to the powers that be.